0: Hey folks, it's Jared. Andrea Howard is your host today, and she has Greg Poling aboard. Greg's new book, On Dangerous Ground, America's Century in the South China Sea, was released on Tuesday, so please check it out wherever you purchase your books. This episode was edited and produced by Marie Williams. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean. Chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of our local chapters and contact information on the website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network: the Bilge Pumps. So you can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a paw of Iron Brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. With that, Kimbersman. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security.
1: Greetings Sea Warriors, let's dive, dive back into Sea Control. I'm Andrea Howard and today we're discussing a new book published by the Oxford University Press in 2022 titled, On Dangerous Ground, America's Century in the South China Sea. We are so lucky to be joined by the author of this tremendous work, Gregory Poling. Greg directs the Southeast Asia Program and Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he is also a senior fellow. He is a leading expert on the South China Sea disputes and conducts research on U.S. alliances and partnerships, democratization and governance in Southeast Asia and maritime security across the Indo-Pacific. As a reminder, all opinions expressed are personal opinions and are not representative of any institutions with which we may be otherwise associated. Thank you so much for joining us, Greg. You are clearly an authority on this topic, and it is really a great, a great privilege for us to have your insight today.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. That's really kind.
1: I'm going to kick right off into it. So you open your book with this question. Have the United States and its allies and partners lost the South China Sea? But you then pivot to say that the question is a bit misguided because it requires defining what can be won or lost. So in this spirit, what do you define as the two different kinds of disputes in the South China Sea?
0: So the South China Sea disputes often get lumped together as if there's this singular thing called the South China Sea dispute. And we have very clear interests, but nobody ever bothers to kind of tell you what those are before we go lay out our plans. The South China Sea is the most contested body of water in the world, not just because there are so many claimants, but because there are different kinds of claims. So the first and the oldest are the territorial disputes. We've got Contested sovereignty claims over the Paracel Islands between China, Taiwan, and Vietnam, the Spratly Islands between China, Taiwan, Vietnam, and in part, the Philippines, Malaysian, Brunei. And then you've got Scarborough Shoal, contested by China, Taiwan, and the Philippines, and Pratas Reef, contested by China and Taiwan. So those are already mind-numbingly complicated, and all the names I just dropped on you are probably going to, you know, whiz by most readers or most listeners. And those are the ones that don't even directly involve U.S. interests. U.S. doesn't care who owns which rock or reef. And historically, the U.S. really never has, with the sole exception of Scarborough Shoal that we can talk about a little later. But for most of the history of the South China Sea disputes over a century now, the U.S.'s position was basically we don't care who owns which of these rocks. We don't have a national stake in it. The only thing that matters as far as the territorial dispute is that uh, nobody shoots at one of our allies or partners and they don't shoot at each other which was a big deal because for most of the century, multiple U.S. allies occupied these reefs. That's dispute one. Dispute two is the maritime dispute, the dispute over water, seabed, and airspace. And that's the newer dispute. I mean, in its current form, obviously, as a result of the codification of international law, as we know it today, under the U.N. Convention of Law of the Sea. Uh, And that brings in all of those countries I named, plus Indonesia, whose seabed and airspace also is included in the South Tennessee. And it's made particularly complex because you have all of these littoral states making claims, huge claims to this contested body of water. And then you have China and Taiwan who come in and say, yeah, yeah, that's all great. But none of that matters because we drew nine dashes on a map in the 1930s. And so it's all ours. That is where direct U.S. interests are involved. We cannot abide The idea that China gets to claim a thousand miles of water and seabed just because it feels like it when China once sat down and helped write these rules. So that brings in the second U.S. interest that's been abiding for most of the century, which is defense of freedom of the seas. And the U.S. really does have a longstanding, I would argue, one of the most abiding and consistent interests in the history of, of U.S. foreign policy in defense of freedom of the seas, whatever that meant at that moment. And right now, that means the law is codified by the UN Convention.
1: Excellent. I couldn't have asked for a better synopsis of some of these territorial maritime disputes. You've laid out the American interests that are at stake. So go ahead and and talk to us about what the initial turning point was for the United States regarding these sovereignty claims.
0: So the way the U.S. got to the South China Sea was via its colonization of the Philippines. Uh, In in the book I lay out in in the intro, what these two interests are, um, defensive allies or or alliance commitments and freedom of the seas, and talk about how freedom of the seas was the older of the two. Long before we had an alliance network, we had the U.S. Navy going out and fighting piracy against the Barbary States, getting into the War of 1812 because of the impressment of U.S. sailors, setting up an Asiatic squadron that drove us into the Pacific, and eventually that Asiatic squadron turning into Dewey's fleet sailing into Manila Bay. Um, And at that point, and kind of the whole expansion of of U.S. empire in the 1890s, made the U.S. a resident power in Asia for at least a relatively brief time compared to the other colonial powers. That's the first time that you start getting direct U.S. concerns, not just about freedom of navigation or freedom of maritime commerce in the abstract, but about South China Sea claims in particular. The first one that I know of being when uh, Japanese uh, guano miners started operating on Pratas Reef, which was a barren rock reef off the southern coast of China, uh, and the government of of China, or at least the government in Canton, got quite upset about that. And then U.S. Secretary of War uh, William Howard Taft, who was recently the Governor General of the Philippines, was quite concerned and went to the the Chinese government and and the Qing government and talked about whether or not the U.S. should support a Qing claim to Pratos Reef to prevent the eventual establishment of a Japanese naval base there just on the doorstep of U.S. territory in the Philippines. You also had the first ever, and really the only ever, U.S. claim, in a sense, to territory. The Scarborough Shoal off the coast of Luzon was outside of the bounds of the 1898 Treaty of Paris, which laid out the uh, what territory Spain had given to the U.S., but it was arguably covered by the uh, addendum two years later called the Treaty of Washington, which added any other territories that were governed by Spain as part of the Philippines had also been given to the U.S. And upon request from the Commonwealth government in, in the early 30s of the Philippines, the U.S. Department of State and war, agreed that Scarborough Shoal belonged to the United States. We forget that now, but that was really the the first and only time that the U.S. directly waded into this, to the dispute. Mostly, U.S. interest during its occupation and colonization of the Philippines was keeping the Japanese out, and particularly keeping the Japanese out of what we call the dangerous ground, the reefs just off the Philippines.
1: Thank you for talking about the U.S. first getting into the the reign of these territorial disputes during and through uh, these Scarborough Shoal debates. So moving on, one of the greatest strengths of your book is this historical layout that you provide of American involvement in the region. We see a major uptick in that involvement during World War II. Why do you call the post-war settlements from World War II in a resolution? And how is the ground laid for that kind of disarray during the conflict itself in World War II?
0: The South China Sea disputes went from being a diplomatic footnote for the U.S. to being a major concern in the latter half of the 30s, really, as as the rush toward war uh, uh, sped up. So up till then, yes, the U.S. was aware that the Qing Empire and then the nationalists in, in China were claiming on paper the Paracel Islands, as were the French, on behalf of their uh, colony in Vietnam, in, in, in Vietnam, and we had remained neutral in that position. Uh, nobody was really claiming the Spratlys until 1930, when the French annexed it, and then the Chinese didn't really object, uh, and we didn't really care. I mean, the U.S. geographer looked around, looked at U.S. charts, said we don't have a claim to the Spratleys, so that's the end of it. Uh, in the latter 1930s, as Japanese commercial interests in the Spratleys and the Paracels, mostly guano miners. And some fishers started giving way to Japanese military interest. It became quite worrying to the US and to the French and the British this idea that you would have potentially Japanese naval bases in the Paracels and the Spratlys able to control and cut off vital sea length of communication between uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, between the French colonies in Anam and Singapore and Sri Lanka, between the US in Subic Bay and Singapore. And so the US started getting quite concerned about Japanese surveys of the dangerous ground, these, these underwater reefs that are now kind of half of the Spratlys. We remained neutral on the ultimate sovereignty question, but we really started arguing with the Japanese about the extent of their eventual claims to all of these islands, what they called the Shinan Gunto, the, the um, New Southern Archipelago which was basically similar to how China does today, just taking all of these rocks and reefs that are separated by hundreds of miles and saying they're all part of a single island group, which obviously they're not. Um, after, well, in the war, of course, the the Japanese managed to simultaneously, um, you know, more or less simultaneously within 24 hours, invade British Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, land on Luzon, and attack Pearl Harbor. And Within, I mean, a matter of days, really, U.S. and Allied power in the Pacific was, was broken. Uh, so the Japanese used the South China Sea as a Japanese lake, um, particularly after the Battle of the Coral Sea for about two years. It wasn't until the Battle of uh, uh Philippine Sea and the Battle of Luzon that we were able to get back in to the South China Sea. And, and after that, it pretty quickly um, became a U.S. lake, at least for a little while. Uh, the Chinese will tell you, Chinese official history will claim that the Cairo Declaration uh, basically said that all Japanese territories would be returned to those that they had been seized from, including the Spratleys and the Paracels, to China. But of course, that's not what the Cairo Declaration said. It's not what the Potsdam Declaration said. And during the San Francisco Peace Conference in 1950... The issue of the dispensation of the Spratly Islands and the Paris Islands was debated hotly, and the Americans took no position. The British took no position. The French let their then-client state of Vietnam issue its own claim to the islands. Neither the Nationalists nor Communist Chinese were at the conference because nobody could agree who got to represent China. So nobody really argued on behalf of uh, the forces in Taiwan the soviets did put forward a claim on behalf of the chinese which was ignored the filipinos chose not to put forward their claim presumably even though they had already decided at that point really that they were going to claim at least part of spratleys because they knew that the americans wouldn't wouldn't back them so there was very clearly a difference of opinion among the allies this argument this post you know uh, the, the, well, a well argument that there was a decision to give the islands to China that was reversed is absurd. No Chinese official had ever set foot in the Spratleys to begin with. There was no documentation of valid Chinese claim. The only arguments were really between the French and the Chinese. And to be blunt, London and Washington had other things on their minds. And the idea that they would still be arguing three quarters of a century later over these rocks never entered into the minds, I think, of the peace negotiators.
1: Looking as peace negotiations were brokered and you know international disputes continued about these different territories and the maritime domains surrounding them the united nations then convened a convention on the law of the sea and that first debate occurred in april 1958 what factions existed amongst the nations there and how did they define the us's approach to law of the sea you know what i'll, I'll just make the question a little broader to give you a, a harder task and how is you know, unclass three and in, and in still continuing to shape the China and U.S. disagreements today.
0: What a, a difficult question! Because, um, well, so what you're getting at is is the way I lay out the structure of the book. You have these multiple parallel historical threads that uh, all are necessary to explain current U.S. interests in the South China Sea. One of them is the evolution of the disputes themselves, which we've been talking about, which was mostly territorial until really the late 70s uh, and early 80s. The second is this evolving nature of maritime law and the U.S. relationship with it, which had nothing to do with the South China Disputes. Nobody was thinking about the South China Disputes in 1958, but you have to understand where we came from to understand where we've gotten to today. So, For most of recorded history, the idea that you would claim open ocean would have been laughable, right? I mean, the oceans were uncharted expanses of danger. You traveled along the coast, you traveled along uh, clearly established shipping lines, and you tried to avoid the brigands who preyed on them. And maybe you made a claim to waters right off your coast or to the rivers within within your territory, but you didn't claim the blue oceans. The This got codified um, during debates in, in Europe uh, in the uh, 19th century is what became known as a shot rule. So I'll skip the earlier arguments over the Myra Liberum and the Mary Clausum and um, a whole lot of Latin. But the bottom line is that most of Europe had rallied around this idea that oceans were a maritime commons, free to all, uh, with the exception of three nautical miles from your. Uh, from your shoreline why three nautical miles because that's about how far a cannonball could fly and so if you can't hit it with a cannonball you don't control it it was as simple as that your territory extends only as far as you can project power there was some disagreement the scandinavians used four miles for instance but basically we all agreed on on the broad uh, strokes here and the americans uh, were inheritors of this uh, position in fact the early u.s congress was the first state. To codify the three mile limit in national legislation. That remained the case up until the drive toward World War II, at which point technological innovation in both the fishing industry and the oil and gas industry started as, as, uh, forcing people to ask these questions that they had never asked before. You know, you, you had the first offshore uh, oil well sunk just off the coast of California. And people started to think, well, wait, eventually we're going to start putting these things out farther than three miles. So who gets to decide where they go? Who gets to tax it? Who gets to regulate it? The same goes for the fishing industry as we started operating far. You know, it wasn't just whalers and guano miners anymore. There were other fishers operating farther from shore. Uh, The U.S. was not the first to lean forward on the fisheries front. We can blame Argentina and Mexico and a few others for that and the Soviets who claimed a 12 mile territorial sea pretty early on. But the U.S. was the first to lean way forward on what we now call the continental shelf, the the right to drill for oil and gas. And this was really a project of uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and particularly his interior secretary, Harold Ikes, who decided that, you know, the U.S. had the best technology for offshore drilling. Um, If we could figure it out, then we should be able to claim it. And that led eventually to what's called the Truman Proclamation on the continental shelf which is unfortunate because Truman had nothing to do with it. It was just one of those things left on his desk when he stepped in um, and not the most important given the closure of World War II. So the U.S. makes this claim uh, under the early Truman administration to the right to drill for offshore oil and gas on the continental shelf to an undetermined um, width. And that leads to a very rapid breakdown in the system. That combined with the rapid independence of post-colonial states who didn't help write these customary rules and had no interest in listening to what Europeans had to say about the matter led to a wave of competing claims farther and farther and farther from shore. Uh, The uh, uh, League of Nations tried to put a halt to it by calling an international uh, law of the sea committee. They couldn't do it. So in 1958, finally, the first United Nations Convention on the of the Sea meets, and it involves a few dozen states, including several uh, Asian, Middle Eastern, African, Latin American states, not very many from Africa, actually, um, who were meant to resolve a few issues. How far is the territorial sea? Because now we've got the Europeans and the Americans saying it's three miles, but we've got the Soviets and a bunch of others saying it's 12 miles. So we've got to resolve that. Two what is this continental shelf thing? How deep does it go or how far from shore does it go? How do we regulate it? Three, what about fishing beyond the territorial sea? And four, we've got this weird idea of a contiguous zone. We'll set that one aside, it doesn't matter, read the book. The arguments play out and what comes out of it are four conventions on each of those things. Um, The territorial sea convention describes the territorial sea, doesn't agree on how far it goes, which is obviously a big problem. The continental shelf convention, talks about what the kind of shelf is, doesn't agree on where it should be, how far out you can go, um, and so on. So it didn't really put the genie in the bottle. It was good enough for the technology of the day because the idea of drilling, you know, an oil well 200 miles out from the coast was still entirely hypothetical. But again, the system began to unwound, unwind pretty quickly. The second UN Conference on the Wall of the Sea in 1960 couldn't resolve these issues, And then both the Soviets and the Americans got awfully concerned about the growing effort by a lot of uh, states, particularly in Latin America, to claim just vast territorial expanses, 200-mile-wide territorial seas in which nobody else would be allowed to sail without permission, much less fish. So in one of those rare cases of Cold War bipartisanship, the Soviets and the Americans both came together and said, we don't agree with each other on a lot of things, but we certainly both agree that 200-mile territorial seas are absurd. The Nixon administration finally got on board, and that leads eventually to the third UN Conference on the Law of the Sea, which, after 10 years of work, codified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982. And despite its current objection to much of what's in it, China was at the table and had as much say in the writing of the UN con- uh, Convention on the Wall of the Sea as anybody else, including all of the states in Southeast Asia, except Brunei, who were also there and helped negotiate these rules. The real problem, and I'm happy to talk about the details of where some of these disagreements are between the US and China, but the fundamental concern uh, driving the maritime disputes in the Southeast Sea today is that in 1982, a weak China saw the rules as beneficial, And by the 1990s, a stronger China no longer felt like following those rules.
1: You see that the United States was at the forefront of helping include the continental shelf as part of these debates within UNCLOS. And now I'm going to give you another large question. So your book, I mean, talks about in 1974, the U.S. struggling to effectively respond to the Chinese assault on the South Vietnamese controlled Western parasols. And then the United States struggled to define its mutual defense obligations in the Philippines in 1975 as the security environment deteriorated in the Spratleys. There were major shifts in the regional balance of power in the 1980s, and you see you know, the kind of coalition of Southeast Asian states coming out in ASEAN, the Associate of Southeast Asian Nations, and the Chinese naval powers advancing during this decade. And then you go on and you define the period between 1992 and 2008 as diplomacy-disappointed, so given this context that you provided on you know, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and all of these different events that you characterize from the subsequent decades, you know, what would you consider to be the greatest diplomatic failures of the United States in this region throughout that time period?
0: The broad stroke story of US involvement in the South China Sea territorial disputes for most of the 20th century is one of neglect and then crisis. So the South China Sea disputes over the Spratlys and over the Parasols never garnered enough sustained attention for the U.S. to really have coherent um, positions. They would, you would have these these moments of crisis come up, be it um, you know Japanese occupations in the late 30s, uh, World War II, obviously, in 1956, when an American citizen, Morton Meads, followed by Filipino citizen Tomas Cloma and Filimon Cloma, go out and, and claim these as unclaimed un, uh, land that, that sparks international crises. And then 74, really, when when China invades the uh, western half of the Paracels and drives the Republic of Vietnam forces off it. And in each of those, you have U.S. officials whose minds were obviously elsewhere suddenly have to look at a map and figure out, okay, where are the Spratleys again, where, which ones are the Paracels, and you, you keep finding the same language over and over in, in the documents. You know, that in 1956, the INR and state had written a really good survey of the status of the legal claims, you know, the history, what the U.S. position was, and then you have to keep, like, rediscovering that document every 10 to 20 years, including in 74, as the U.S. has to figure out what its historic position was on the claims. So that lack of consistency meant that the U.S. was often caught flat-footed, most especially in 74, as the, you know, you read the minutes of Washington Action Group meetings with Kissinger and the cabinet trying to figure out where are these islands, who occupies them. I mean, we've got at that point, three treaty allies occupying parts of the Spratlys, and nobody in the room seems to know which ones or where they are or how many men they might have out there. It was not a recipe for good decision making. You combine that with the fact that we had the normalization, you know, the building normalization of ties with China being the overriding kind of diplomatic initiative for the region. And it meant it led to a hyper cautious um, flat-footed response from the U.S. at that point. We were quick to blame our South Vietnamese allies for starting a fight that they didn't start. Um, we were quick to assume the, that we could take Chinese assurances at face value, which we couldn't. An American special advisor was captured in the Battle of the Paracels, who was out there, uh, advising our forces, And it wasn't until his negotiated release that the U.S. finally got what it considered a credible explanation of that battle, by which point it was clear that everything we had thought had been wrong, the South Vietnamese hadn't started at all, but we had gone through all these diplomatic negotiations with the the Chinese representative of Washington on the assumption that we should trust them, not our own allies. Uh, That followed a year later by the fall of Saigon and the Nixon Doctrine, And the War Powers Act leads to a bit of a crisis in U.S. alliance credibility in the region that others have written about in the broader context. Where I touch on it here is with respect to the Philippine alliance and the idea that now the Philippines is out there on their own, particularly after 79, when we cut uh, the Republic of China loose. So there's a last U.S. treaty ally in the region. They've just watched the U.S. not respond to a Chinese invasion of the Paris in 1974. They've just watched Saigon fall in 75. They've just watched us uh, abrogate the the treaty with the ROC. And now they're being asked again to renegotiate access through the military bases agreement. And all they want to know is does the military, well, it's not all they want to know. I I don't want to simplify Marcos's desire for a lot more money among other things. (laughs) I shouldn't be Pollyannish. But one of the things they want to know is, okay, does this alliance at this point do anything other than make us targets of a potential Soviet strike? Like what exactly are you defending us from, not just us giving you real estate? And the answer had to be in the South Tennessee. So you had this long debate under first Ford and then the Carter administrations on whether or not the mutual defense treaty with the Philippines uh, covered the South Tennessee. We eventually came out around to a mostly, I mean, a quiet agreement within state that it mostly did. We didn't necessarily weigh in on territorial sovereignty, But there was an internal consensus that if a Filipino ship was attacked anywhere in the South China Sea, uh, it would be covered by the treaty. We then said that again in 98. And then in, you know, after Scarborough Shoal in in 2012, we have President Obama go out to Manila in 2014, and he won't just say it. He said, you know, he's just been in Tokyo, and he tells the Japanese that Senkakus are clearly covered by the treaty, and he won't say the same to to the Filipinos. It wasn't until Mike Pompeo goes out, uh, two years ago, that we finally got a explicit public clarification of a decision that we made in 1979. So I would argue that the unnecessary ambiguity and the damage it did to the U.S. Philippine alliance was probably our worst diplomatic mistake in the South China Sea.
1: Your book helps make policy suggestions for the United States to provide some of that consistency. Your exact verbiage is to quote chart a quote chart a course unquote. And you claim, though, that there are no military solutions, at least none, that wouldn't cost all sides more than they gained. However, what role will American hard power play in a successful strategy? And then one last, you know, double question to tack on to our final final bit of this conversation. You know, what lessons from your book do you find are going to be most applicable in terms of applying American hard power potentially to the UK in crisis today?
0: Well, thanks. I, I, I should apologize at the front. I know that I'm giving way too long answers here. I'm turning each of these into story time with Greg. Um, so you probably had more <laughs> questions that, that we could have gotten through. Um, U.S. So I write explicitly in the conclusion US hard power has a clear role to play here, particularly in the case of the Philippine Alliance. If So any solution to the South China Sea dispute is going to have to be diplomatic. Um, the US cannot enforce unilaterally enforced maritime rights, it can't guarantee the fishing and seabed rights of our uh, partners in the region, at the point of a gun, there will have to be negotiations negotiated settlements, the only way to bring China around to those com- compromises will be sustained international diplomatic and economic pressure the kind that we impose on other bad actors, Iran, North Korea, Russia, since 2014, and especially now, since the invasion of Ukraine. Um, But all of that will be a very long-term prospect. So the role of U.S. hard power is to buy time. It's to keep the Filipinos in the fight. If a diplomatic solution is 10 years out, the Filipinos don't have 10 years. Um, Given the waste of time since Duterte's election in 2016 and Donald Trump's election in late 2016 where neither side spent any real time thinking about the South China Sea. China is in a much, much stronger position today than it was even five or six years ago. And it is making it all but impossible for U.S. partners and allies to exercise their legal rights. And that is not just a problem for those partners and allies. The U.S. alliance system in the Pacific, the system that we built after World War II because we had come to the conclusion that it was the best way to secure U.S. national security and U.S. prosperity was to prevent the rise of any competing hegemon like Japan, again, in Asia. And to do that, we needed to be positioned in Asia. All of that rests on the consent of our partners and allies because they believe that having the U.S. in the region is ultimately best for them. It is the best way to secure their rights, their liberties, their prosperity. If our Philippine ally, our oldest treaty ally in Asia, looks around one day and has lost all rights to its own resources, its own seabed, it's been made, you know, a neutered rump to China, the only country in the world without an exclusive economic zone, and the U.S. says, "Well, we're still doing FONOPS, Why should the Philippines continue to support a U.S. forward presence in Asia under that circumstance? Why should it? Why, what kind of questions will that raise in the minds of all U.S. partners and allies? So, U.S. hard power's job is to, you know build the EDCA bases, get some U.S. Marine fire teams out there with long-range fires, hold Chinese ships at risk, help the modernization of the armed forces of the Philippines, um, ensure that our commitment that, that Mike Pompeo made and that many U.S. officials have quietly made in the, in the years before that to defend Filipino force in the South Tennessee is real, right now it's not. Uh, Philippines and China can read a map too. Okinawa and Guam are too far from the Spratleys to credibly defend anything. And to buy time so that a long-term diplomatic strategy of cost imposition on Beijing can convince China that its behavior in the South China Sea ultimately undermines its broader goals of global leadership. Uh, and I mean, there's a whole lot more there, but bottom line is hard power has to facilitate the diplomatic and, and economic game.
1: I can't think of a better way to, to end the episode. Your book, I really think, should be considered by our listeners and hopefully its future readers to be the sort of primer on how to gain that consent of allies to be in the region and to be effective in the region. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Gregory Poling, for joining me. And I hope you all do reach out and get his book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea.